Hello and welcome to my podcast, Conversations with David. I am your host, David Owasi. And uh, on this podcast, we're talking to accomplished professionals and entrepreneurs across the country. We're learning about what keeps them passionate, what keeps them going. And we're also talking about some of the lessons learned along the way. Now I'm here with my friend, someone I have a huge respect for, uh, Chris Friesen. Why don't you introduce yourself, Chris? Sure. Thanks very much for having me, David. It's an honor. I'm enjoying the podcast. Uh, keep it up. Um, so I'm a, I'm a co-founder of a, a medical device company out here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, over on the East Coast. And I'm also a uh, PhD candidate at Dalhousie University, also out in here, out here in Halifax. And so, yep, that pretty much sums it up from a top line perspective. Excellent. Uh, and Chris and I have been uh, friends for a couple of years now. And uh, one of the things that really bonded us or got us really uh, in tune with each other was uh, our love uh, for entrepreneurship and sort of venture creation, creating value. And um, I'm just going to start from there, Chris. Now, I know from some of our conversation, you wouldn't classify yourself as your, your classic entrepreneur, all those dreams to be uh, to be an entrepreneur from high school kind of guy. Uh, you took a little bit of a different path. But before we talk about your path, can you just share to me like what entrepreneurship means to you and why you've been interested in entrepreneurship over the last couple of years? Sure. Um, so... I, it feels sort of random and it feels, you know, it feels kind of like, uh, uh, like there was no rhyme or reason that got me here exactly. Um, but, uh, but to me, I think it, uh, the reason that, uh, it has been such a, uh, blessing to me to start the entrepreneurial journey, um, even as, you know, like a, an, an adult, like you said, and not a kid, um, is because, uh, ever since, I was younger, I've always really had a strong search for meaning. And I've really brought that into the things I do in my professional life. I've always had a real, I've always been really ambitious for meaning, trying to, you know, find things to do with my time between, you know, the time you wake up and the time you stop working that feel at the end of the day, like, you know, um, that, you know, you don't, you don't regret what you did. You don't have any second thoughts about whether that was, you know, a good use of your time. So I'm always, I'm, I'm craving that, I guess, uh, that complacency, that feeling of, uh, of just, uh, you know, that you're doing what you ought to be in the, in the world. Absolutely. And I'm guessing that was part of the reasons or part of the things that, that drove you to start your current company, which is Axiom Neurotechnology. But before we dive into the full details of Axiom Neurotechnology, for someone like yourself, who you would not necessarily say, you know, again, like, you know, entrepreneurship was like a passion all your life and, you know, you just really uh, kind of uh, grew into it. So it was something more you realized when you were finding, trying to find purpose, trying to find meaning, trying to find some significance. Uh, in your life, um, what would you say has been your biggest takeaway in terms of learning in your first or second year of business ownership or entrepreneurship? What was uh, what was the biggest things you took away from that first or second year? You've been at this for a couple of years now, I, I believe, and I'm just curious as to what your first or second year was like in business. Yeah, we started uh, we started our company, uh, Axum Neurotechnology, uh, around four years ago, and. Um, some big takeaways. Um, I think it's it's really you know it's sim it's simple stuff. It's stuff that's going to sound cliche, but it's uh you know just 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 persevere. You know, there's there's just some there's just benefit in just you know being able to take your lumps and keep going. 
and also um, uh, I think it's a huge it's a hugely underrated uh, attribute to not be afraid of looking stupid. I think that was one thing I really learned coming from an academic background where it's kind of always a pissing contest, uh, especially in the sciences. It's all about, you know, critiquing and proving people wrong. Uh, and so um, and so you, you can kind of get your guard up and get defensive and get your ego kind of, you know, invested in, in, in feeling smart. And, you know, working on a venture like this has really uh, helped me understand in like an internalized way that uh, those feelings are hugely inefficient. <laughs> they're a lot, they're just noise amongst the signals that you're trying to send to people. And so if you can be realistic with yourself and not fear, uh, you know, acknowledging that you don't know things or acknowledging that you, you know, you might've thought you knew something a day ago, but then you screwed it up and now you know you don't, you didn't know. Um, you, you just become way more useful. I definitely, definitely agree with that, with those points. Uh, the, the first one being perseverance. I think first and foremost, no matter how talented you are or how great your business idea is, uh, everyone is always going to hit that slump or that slope where things are not working out or, you know, deals are not coming in and you're like, you know, should I do this? Is this going to still work? Uh, I, I think I definitely agree with the fact that perseverance is a quality that transcends whatever you know it is you're doing whether it's an entrepreneurship or your career whatever it is i think that's a very core skill i particularly like the second point you made because that was something i struggled with initially as well uh the the desire to always be right or always to appear that you know everything all the time uh, i think it's a, a core skill to learn being able to uh to, to be vulnerable if you will and kind of put your ego in check i think that's a, that's a very key point you made yeah yeah, so uh, in terms of uh, my next question here for you, uh, tell me more about Axiom Neurotechnology. What is the core of your business? What do you guys do? Yeah, so uh, we're trying to improve post-stroke physical rehabilitation. Uh, stroke is a huge problem. Um, about a million strokes happen in the U.S. every year, uh, and that's kind of consistent worldwide. And um, about 80% of strokes um, leave people with some kind of physical disability afterwards. Um, we're focused right now on the disability in people's upper extremities. So usually people have hemiplegia after a stroke. So one side of their body is, um, is paralyzed or weak or spastic. Um, and so we are trying to improve rehabilitation after stroke. And that's a huge thing. And we're only, you know, trying to start by tackling one little piece. Um, but that's kind of the vision for the company. Um, and so uh, rehabilitation after stroke is evidence-based. It's the right thing to be doing. But um, many studies show that, you know, as, as few as 50% of patients actually benefit, it, benefit from it when they get it at all. There's also problems of access because rehabilitation is generally done one-on-one -on -one with a person and it's very expensive. But even when pa patients get rehabilitation, often they don't benefit. And, a, and a, one big reason why is uh, we don't understand rehabilitation after a stroke the same way we understand rehabilitation after a knee injury, for example, because the knee and the brain, they're not, they're not the same in terms of complexity. Um, and so you can't reverse engineer re re repair of the neural tissue of the brain tissue the same way you can um, of the tissue in your knee. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is we're building devices that measure the brain that can make an impact on the ability of the healthcare system to, you know, optimize people's physical recovery after a stroke. So our first uh, product that we're working on now, so we're not in the market yet, is we're a medical device. It's a long road to hoe. Um, 
is, uh, is a headband that measures the part of your brain that controls movement. And so the purpose of that is to provide feedback when people are doing rehabilitation exercises after stroke, because there's been some studies that have shown that that can be beneficial. Uh, if people see feedback about that part of the brain, it can help them activate it more and that can be um, more, make their rehab more effective. And then there's also some literature, some basic science to suggest that if you collect a lot of this data, you might be able to determine, you know, how much rehab does someone need to hit this critical threshold to help them get over the hump uh, and actually see gains post-stroke. Um, so that's that's the, the high level of, of what we're up to. Excellent. Thanks for breaking that down uh, for us who are not uh, in that world, but. From hearing and listening to your response to you know what you guys do, it sounds you know it's very very apparent that you're very passionate about your business. You're very passionate about this company. Is there a specific thing that drew you to this problem? Because uh, uh, you know, is there some specific was it a personal you know relationship with someone who had stroke? Or I'm I'm just very curious. Uh, is there anything specific that drew you to solving and working on this specific problem? Good question. Um, it was, again, you know, like my story of how I got into entrepreneurship, it seemed almost kind of coincidental. Um, so I ended up moving to Halifax to do graduate work um, about six years ago. And uh, the reason I chose this particular program, this particular advisor, is that I really wanted to work on neurofeedback. So that's, you know, providing feedback from the brain. So you're taking measurements from the brain, you're putting that into a digital interactive system, and you're using that, you know, kind of like a video game-esque uh, uh, interaction to provide some kind of benefit, whether it's clinical or wellness. Um, and so that was what I was passionate about. I had done undergraduate work in, in functional neuroimaging more generally, and I wanted to kind of hone in on this area that I saw as really promising and kind of, you know, uh, new and underserved and, and an area that, you know, could really use ambitious people getting into it with both feet. Um, and so that's how I got into this general area. And then I met my co-founder, uh, Tony Ingram, in the lab that I was working in. He had come from uh, a physical therapy background and kind of had been working in, in physical therapy with stroke patients for a few years and decided, you know, I really want to go back to school. I want to, you know, use what I've learned clinically to try to contribute to the basic science surrounding rehabilitation. And so he saw what I was working on. We became friends and you know just kind of were casually hanging out and uh and he was I, I was kind of working on the basic science you know prepare i was like developing and testing systems to be used clinically and then he kind of you know filled in the blanks for me about like here's the kind of impact this sort of technology could have um and you know that really drew me in and made me even more interested in working on these sorts of systems and so that was kind of the germ since then i've met a lot of stroke patients and a lot of clinicians who work with stroke patients and that's kind of just been um you know it's been just fuel to keep me going um and so yeah that's kind of it absolutely and thanks for that response chris i think that's you know, really really important uh, i like the fact that you were able to nail down the types of problem you want to work on very early on and it made perfect sense when you were able to find uh the right partner to bring along on this project and it just made perfect sense but for the sake of our listeners and some of them you know are kind of wondering it's funny because i was having a coaching call today with uh, uh someone from ontario and they were telling me david i'm not sure i want to go into you know this field and i want to go into 
into that field because my friends are in there and they, they were quite unsure about what they want to do. What would your advice be to someone who is at the crossroads? Maybe they're just done with university. Maybe they're trying to think of, should I go into a master's program? Should I go into entrepreneurship? Should I start a business? What area should I start a business in? Based on your personal experience and how you came around to you know this neural pathway sort of problem you're trying to solve, what would your advice be for someone who's at that crossroad right now? I think my first piece of and first of all, I'll say that uh, it's 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 really hard to give good advice. <laughs> That's another thing that I've learned from entrepreneurship is that um, you know most advice uh, you know does not is not good in every situation. So you know take all the caveats with this advice too. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the first thing that comes to mind is I would uh, I would say that it's not to me as important. Uh, I, I would de-emphasize what decision you make. And I would put more emphasis on uh, what uh, uh, I would put more emphasis on uh, what you do after you make that decision. So I think people put too much uh, emphasis on should I choose this path or this path? Um, and you know, obviously that's that's rational. But I think it's more important to uh, just focus on making a decision and putting your head down and optimizing the path that you've chosen. And you can potentially look for, you know, future decision points where you can you can pivot. But that's, that's what comes to mind is I think people have, you know, analysis, uh, paralysis by analysis too much, people him and haw about, you know, if I make the right decision or the wrong decision, everything's going to be set in motion. Um, and I'll have and my fate will be sealed. But you know, really, it's about, it's about making the, de the, the decision effectively, and just optimizing for the decision you make. Absolutely. And I definitely agree with that point you made there, Chris, because I don't know if they, there's no way of knowing that a decision is perfect or not, unless you're in there and you you can then analyze and see what the results of that decision you made. And uh, I think a lot of people are very afraid of, you know, being in a situation where things are not working out and then they have to recalibrate because they almost like uh, puts uh, their personal, rep well, they, they attach their self-worth, if you will, to the results of everyday decisions they make, and that should not be the case. And that thing I also add to that, Chris, is, uh, you know, feel free to agree or disagree with me. I feel like, you know, people should not necessarily um, have, people should not expect to have the answers to what their future should be in like, you know, a few months. Like you don't know what the future will hold, right? And if you think that maybe today you wanna to be a computer scientist or you wanna be a, a biochemist or whatever it is, if you decide tomorrow that maybe this is not the right path for me, I feel like people should be able to know that that is okay. It's okay to not uh, feel like you're in the right field. I wanna make a change because in my career, I have had those situations where I thought that I wanted to be in microbiology for starters. And then I went to the microbiology class and I'm like, nope, this is definitely not for me. I don't want to be, you know, studying microorganisms I can't see. And then I made a change and I, you know, went to a computer science, a different field, and that felt more natural to what I, what I wanted. So I feel like people should not be wedded to like, okay, I have to make a decision about my future and it's set in stone and nothing can change. Um, of course, you know, there are nuances to things where you have to still commit to things. You can't just like jump around from time to time. Uh, but I don't know, do you have any thoughts uh, on, on that before we, we move on to another topic or? Yeah, no, you, you put it really well. Um, I think people think they're choosing a, a recipe, but really they're choosing ingredients. You know, it's like, it's so important to have people who can go across silos of industries, um, or of departments in academia. And so you should see it as, you know, you're choosing a, an ingredient that you're gonna add to the broth, not so much, uh, you know, a, a, a ready-baked meal that's gonna be, you know, 
you know, uh, kind of deterministically uh, determined throughout. Um, so I agree, and and I and again, and I think you made a great point. This is not to say that people should be flighty because that's um, that's a that's a big pitfall. You definitely don't want to um, be jumping around at every shiny object um, that can really hurt you. It's good to be uh, principled in your decisions, and it's good to be, like I said earlier, have perseverance. But um, but at the same time, um, you know, it's good to also keep a lateral view of you know your career and you know um, think about the things you could do that aren't necessarily the next step on the path you're, that you're on. Absolutely. And thanks for that insight. I do like the way you, you use uh, the cooking example. I know uh, you're someone who really enjoyed cooking as a passion of yours, but that was very well put. Well put. <laughs> it's, it's 2020. It's the year for, uh, for cooking in your kitchen. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Chris, uh, one of the things that you and I have spoken about before, I believe in some of our previous conversation is the, the place of you know, a university degree in today's day and age. And especially as we find ourselves uh, in a pandemic uh, and you are a you know, well, well learned person. You, know, you are currently pursuing your doctorate degree. So you, you definitely be, been there from your undergrad to, you know, a master's level to a, a a doctorate level and that's something i've always struggled with you know part of me wants to like go get an mba just because i think it's cool uh, but what would your advice be for someone who is wondering you know what's really the place of you know university degree in my career success um, as you know because i feel like sometimes our definition of success is based off of the model of learning of 20 25 years ago where you know you had to get a degree to get a decent paying job but as we in a full-fledged internet age you know we're in the age where being an influencer is a very well-paying career and you don't necessarily need a university degree to go that route. How should people start thinking about, you know, what a university degree really means and what its place is in career success? Yeah, um, I, the first thing I think of is the uh, signaling theory of education, which is a thing economists talk about when they talk about how to explain education uh, educational systems and it kind of just holds that you know a lot of the utility of education and degrees is uh, is for signaling so you, you know you don't necessarily go to school to learn things and become a different person than you came out as you you go to school to you know gain some sort of accreditation that signals to future employers that you um, you know you can uh, stick to something like a degree program for several years and, you know, you know, apply your uh, acumen within a preset uh, mold. Um, so I guess I'm a little bit uh, jaded from the educational system. I should say that I don't regret my decisions and I've done a lot of school after high school. So I'm a complete hypocrite. Um, but I think that I, I, one of your one of your previous guests, uh, I, I heard commented on this, how um, you know, it's just it's just clear that if if undergraduate in particular ed education is becoming more common, then you know you really need to think creatively about how you differentiate yourselves from your undergraduate peers. Um, you know, it's just you know it's just simple numbers. More people get undergrads than they used to, which means that the you know differentiability of an undergraduate education is less than it used to be. So mm -hmm. I think that's something that everyone should reckon with. And, um, and so I would say, you know, lean into the signaling theory of education. And if you want to do a certain type of career, 
you know, you could think about what degree could signal that you'd be good for that career, but you could also deconstruct it and think, you know, what could I do that doesn't involve stepping into a school and paying money for school that could also signal that. So I would just encourage people to, um, you know, think about education as signaling, even though that's not all it is. I do believe that educational institutions are important for learning. Um, but I think that's a, loose, a useful lens for people. Absolutely. I definitely agree with you as well. And thanks for referencing one of my conversations. I think that was with Zach Johnson, uh, where he was talking about the idea that, you know, at the end of the day, if everyone is going to get a degree, then you might as well be the university degree is equal, almost equitable to a high school diploma because everyone has a high school diploma and that doesn't differentiate you anymore. But um, in that conversation, again, I'm not sure if you can remember some of the details. We, we talked about some of Cal Newport's work and the idea of, you know, sometimes, you know, passion is not enough. You have to find some rare and valuable skills uh, to differentiate yourself, you know, which is kind of the, the, the points you were making. From, from your experience, you know, you've been in academia for a while now. Um, and also you've been in the world of entrepreneurship, what would be a skill in your opinion that someone can start thinking of focusing on to help differentiate themselves from the crowd? Let's kind of pinpoint it from more your profession, from your experience being in academia. So someone who say, you know, they've been in university, they're kind of started working on their master's degree right now and they're thinking I'm going into doctorate degree. Now, a lot of those skills are good, but you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it differentiates them that much. Um, now, this question might be a little vague and you know, feel free to, to approach it however you see fit. But what would you say would be uh, for someone like yourself uh, who has similar experience like you in academia, what would be those rare and valuable skills that they can uh, work on getting that will help differentiate themselves from everyone else who has a master's degree so everyone else who has a bachelor's degree? I would say that it's really helpful uh, to differentiate yourself if you start something. Um, if you start a, you know, start a, start a volunteer organization, you know, you know, if you can build an app or a website that, you know, reflects some sort of topic or, uh, or cause that you care about, um, you know, starting a company obviously is a bigger undertaking, but I, I think, I think that, um, I think doing things outside of the academic world while you're in academia is really valuable for, uh, for not only helping you get your feet outside of academia, and most people do end up leaving academia, so that's important. But it also it also differentiates you, especially if you're starting something. Um, if you're, you know, lots of it's it's easy to to find where they, you know, accept volunteers and you know check the box of like yes I volunteered there. But if you start something, that's a bit different. That that takes that takes a lot more forethought. Um, it often takes a lot more, like I said, perseverance. And so I would say if if you can. If there's something you could think of that you could start, maybe, you know, certainly with other people, certainly small is fine. But um, I think starting something, uh, I think that to me intuitively, that seems like that would differentiate you. I definitely agree with you. And when I think about my own experience, I, I felt that when I was in university, I was kind of taking the same courses as everyone. And the way I felt I could differentiate myself was to do something outside of university. And I started my business. Now, also before starting my business, though, I definitely like was volunteering in different capacities and different you know, university organizations. And I think volunteering is one of the perfect ways to differentiate yourselves because number one, you're able to test out uh, yourself in a different environment without having to put in uh, that investment, long-term investment. So you can say, okay, I want to go, you know, 
work at a soup kitchen. Uh, and you can do that for two months, you can do that for two years, but you're not bound by any sort of contracts to be there for that long. If it adds value to you in a way, you can definitely stay at, stay there for a while. Uh, but if you feel like, you know what, I want to do something else, you can always leave. So I think uh, volunteering is, a, is an excellent way, not only to add value to others, which is great, you know, but also to help you discover yourself in a way and to help you build some sort of uh, uh, personality or some sort of uh, skills outside of your primary school responsibility. So I think uh, volunteering is a definitely excellent way to differentiate yourself by having some of those real and valuable skills. Totally. And the nice thing about volunteering is that, um, you know, because you're not getting paid, the bar is, is reasonably low. So, you know, you can, you can, you can overperform, you know, re reliably if you put in the work. And I think overperforming um, you know, like, like I said about, you know, decisions, if you have two crappy decisions about where to go, um, you know, you're going to have to make that decision no matter what, but it's what you do after you make the decision that's going to matter. So if you, you know, if you can overperform at every avenue, that will just increase your options uh, down the road. And so I, uh, I, I agree. I think, I think, like I said, I think, I think volunteering uh, is, is great. Um, and especially if you can, you know, really commit to overperforming and you don't, you don't have to, but like, I think I've been, I've been in uh, some volunteer organizations. I was, I was on a board of a nonprofit uh, before I started this company. And, um, and, and one of the members of the, it was a tool library and it's still, it's still active. One of the members, um, he came in and it was clear that he had, you know, carved out a bit of his schedule for volunteering. And he was, you know, he was a middle-aged guy and he was really capable and he, he just, totally overperformed and it was amazing and it elevated everyone and um and i think he got a lot out of it as well just by um you know the leadership kind of gravitas that he kind of naturally assumed just by taking it really seriously and just and just killing it and i think a volunteer organization can be a great avenue for for something like that absolutely and thanks for that insight chris and last point on that before we move on to something else is uh i, I think like that uh you know volunteering is also an opportunity to meet a lot of uh, very you know unique people um whether that's you know, people in the community who could be helpful in your various ventures in the future or it could be very you know good friends that you could make who could join you in different ventures but usually people who you would see in a volunteer situation is usually a, a different type of breed of people people who are selfless people who will, will look to add value to others uh, whenever they can. And I think those are the types of people that you want to be interacting with anyways. Um, so Chris, uh, before we move on, I want to ask a last question about Axiom. So what's the goal for Axiom? What's the, you know, the, the goal we looking to lead this company in the future? Uh, like I said, our goal is to improve post-stroke rehabilitation. We, we might end up uh, interested in other uh, neurological uh, diseases, but right now we're really laser focused on on stroke and on post-stroke rehabilitation. So, um, I I think that uh, if if we can if we can bring medical devices to market that can help uh, clinicians better understand how their patients are uh, recovering and then reliably improve that recovery dollar for dollar, um, you know that's that's a huge lift right there. So yeah, mm. that's our, that's our, that's our big vision. For sure. And I know you guys are working on a few um, uh, tools and devices to kind of measure things. Uh, and and you, know, you probably don't want to get into that because it's not selling stuff, but I think you know, the work is pretty cool uh, that you guys are doing. Thanks. I appreciate that. 
For sure. So Chris, I would like us to make a, a bit of a pivot in our conversation here. I want us to talk a little bit about some of the softer skills. And I know you wouldn't consider yourself an expert, if you will, uh, on, on the areas of emotional intelligence and soft skills. But I'm just curious at a general level, what would you say, you know, emotional intelligence or soft skills, what would you say is the place of those skills in your own career success? When you look back on your career, you know, sometimes you're not very like, okay, I was able to practice empathy here. I was able to practice self-regulation here. But when you think about things at a grander, bigger scale, what would you say is the role of those softer skills in career growth and success? So for myself, um, what comes to mind first is just, uh, you know, being able to uh, lead a team of people and, you know, tr have people work together and, uh, you know, get things done. That's a, that's a, that's a challenge, especially for someone like me who was right out of school, still in school at the time. And so I think that, uh, I think that while I certainly was far from perfect and still am, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've met a lot of, I've met a lot of startup founders and I've seen a lot of struggles with, um, with, collaborations and you know employees and and i think I, I i had an i had an okay personality to start something like this um i think you need you know it's a yeah i, I think uh, soft skills are kind of like um you know the interface of your personality with your situation and then using you know awareness to kind of optimize your personality for that situation and and um yeah, I would say overall, it's it's helped me, um, you know, uh, have my role on 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 this team here at Axum, and also you know get collaborations going with people, and you know it's it's hard to put a you know a, a dollar value or a, a time value on it, but um, it it feels like it has been important, um, just kind of looking around at, at other companies uh, that I've seen throughout the years. Yeah, spoken like a true scientist. <laughs> so um, I, I think uh, when I think about soft skills, I see soft skills as sort of a, almost a, a lateral skill where regardless of wherever you are in, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're working in the lab all day, or whether you're out, you know, in the fields, a farmer, whatever it is, those skills typically would apply in any field. And then, you know, what we call hard skills, are like specific technical skills. So what are you doing? developer is just relevant in typically one field uh, whether you're you know, pharmacist it's just you not know, one field and whatnot so I see you know soft skills and emotional intelligence to be something that uh, resonates across the board but to really drill into some of the details of soft skills uh, Chris um, uh, you mentioned something about self-awareness right and self-awareness is uh, the ability to understand uh, what's going on um, inside your head, in your mind, and why you're feeling what you're feeling. And this is typically, you know, associated with emotions, right? And, uh, you know, emotions doesn't have to be like, you know, singing Kumbaya, holding hands, singing Kumbaya kind of thing. You know, emotions could be something as simple as understanding that you're frustrated. And I think a lot of people don't understand when they're frustrated. And then they lash out at others, or they yell at other people, or they transfer aggressions, but they don't recognize that, actually, I'm for sure because someone cut me off in traffic today and that is kind of snowballing my whole day and uh, i think awareness is a very particular skill because it really helps you to understand where you are your mindset where you are at certain points and helps you modulate or adjust your behavior to make sure it's consistent with your long-term goals in that specific situation in your opinion what would you say is the the role of having that awareness and i know in that many conversations even though maybe unconsciously i've seen you have that level of awareness about yourself 
skill set about where you are in certain areas, but what would be your general thoughts on the skill of awareness? Yeah, uh, I like your I like your operationalization of it as uh, you know just trying to um, you know make a make a call to your long term goals in in each moment and try to act as though uh, you're you know uh, optimizing for them. I think that's a that's an elegant way to put it. Thank you. Uh, for for myself, uh, I think that this is one area where I've I've had uh, challenges that are like kind of blessings, you know, the good the good kind of challenges to have. Like I have I think too much self awareness. I uh, for a long time I wrote a lot of fiction, and I was you know my my academic background kind of started in psychology, uh, before I moved into neuroscience, and so I've always been a very cerebral person. And so uh, that has many benefits because, you know, you're aware, you know, you, you don't necessarily need to just raise awareness. <laughs> uh, so for me, it's been things like, um, you know, I've, in the past, I've been a bit prone to like social anxiety. Um, and I think that can be really helpful because it, you know, it is a voice in your head that helps you, um, you know, not offend people and not do wrong by people. But when you have to fire someone, um, you know, it makes the situation extra hard to, you know, act with composure. And so I've had to just kind of, you know, just work on, uh, you know, living with that awareness, um, get better at, you know, down-regulating it as it were. Um, and, uh, and like I said, also what, what I called back to before, you know, not wanting to look stupid, that's another thing that's associated with social anxiety. And so that's another thing where I think everyone, um, could could use self-awareness on and be relentlessly uh, hard on themselves for, uh, you know, trying to avoid, uh, you know, making yourself look smart. Right. Yeah. So uh, that's a good, good point you made there, Chris. And when I think of self-awareness and how to grow that skill, I am typically thinking about, you know, um, uh, self-dialogue is one of the big things that I've had going for me in the last couple of years. And basically self-dialogue is all about, you know, kind of talking to yourself. So if you're feeling a certain way, labeling that emotion. So for example, some of the examples you mentioned was, you know, not wanting to look stupid. And I've been there before where I am not about to make a presentation or about to have this you know huge uh, conversation with someone that I I, I feel uh, I have huge respect for and I don't want to look stupid to them and then I'm having those voices in the back of my head telling me how you know this is going to go wrong this is going to be horrible and I think awareness is all about self-dialogue and telling myself okay so why am I feeling this way okay I'm feeling this way because I don't want to appear stupid okay am I actually stupid uh, sometimes maybe but for the most part no uh, okay how can I prepare to make sure I don't look stupid and then basically having that self-dialogue to be like it's okay to feel what you're feeling right now but this is the way to move forward and so i think that's important um now chris another thing i wanted to ask you about and you brought this up was uh you brought this up this was uh, about self-regulation right so it's one thing to have all of these feelings all of these fears and all of these um emotions in your you know behind in the back of your mind or in your head or your mind it's another thing else to be able to push them aside not ignore them but push them aside to be functional right because you can be paralyzed by your fears of looking stupid or by your fears of uh, whatever it is you're feeling. How have you evolved or what does your gro growth process look like as you've you know, been overcoming that? You know, you've talked about social uh, anxiety as you've been overcoming some of those issues. How have you evolved your growth to be able to regulate and keep some of those uh, toxic emotions, if you will, under control? Um, 
Man, that's an excellent and tough question. Uh, I, I think I think something that's been useful for me has been uh, trying to continuously stay out of my comfort zone. And that can mean a lot of different things. But I think that, uh, you know, the, the edge gets taken off uh, the types of emotions and thoughts that prevent proper self-regulation by, um, you know, experiencing adversity. Um, and, you know, that's, that's not to say that you want to traumatize yourself because that will, you know, that you, you know, that'll to be one step forward, two steps back. But I think that, you know, challenging yourself continuously and kind of taking one step forward, you know, um, you know, doing something that, that feels uncomfortable, staying with it, working through it and, you know, moving on and doing, and then having it feel being, becoming habituated to it and then moving on and doing something, you know, that furthermore makes you uncomfortable. Um, I don't, I don't think it was ever an intentional choice to do that for myself, but I think that if I had to diagnose it retrospectively, I guess that's the only thing I can come up with, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a challenging thing. There's certainly no one size fits all, uh, solution for everyone. Everyone has different, uh, personal styles with mm. respect to self-regulation. I've been called, uh, I've been, I've been compared to Spock multiple times by, by people I know. So I have a, I have a, I guess a unique, uh, style and I, it's, it's not something that I've struggled with, uh, that much, um, in, in recent years. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's challenge. It's challenging to improve it. So that's the best I got for you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do appreciate that feedback, and I and I think that you know uh, what you mentioned, which is uh, being uncom being comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think uh, it's a very very key point in personal growth and development, and. Um, even regardless of what you're feeling, right? So if you're feeling social anxiety, or if you're feeling fear of failure, or you know, if you're feeling uh, like uh, you, I think there's a, there's a term for it when you feel like uh, you're. I'm trying to find the right word here. It's called. Um, so when you're feeling like you you're an impost, imposter syndrome, there you go. That's the right word. Uh, sometimes yeah. you feel like you're an imposter and you know, you, you're a fraud, if you will. I think some of those things is really putting yourself in, in, in a comfortable situation to overcome them. Uh, but like you rightly said, not you know, traumatizing yourself, but trying to find that balance. Um, yep, totally. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's again calling back to my academic side it's it's like the the tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy just trying to employ them in a way that's that makes sense for you and what you want to get done um yeah for sure now let's make a bit of a change here uh to some of the last uh, bit of topic we're almost at 45 minutes yet so that's been fun conversation so far uh but uh you know when uh, in the pandemic right and uh uh, and what that means is you not know, everything has changed in terms of how we work, how we relate to other people. I'm very curious for yourself. You've been going hard, hard. I know you're working on your, you've just finished your thesis for your doctorate. Uh, you've been busy working at it and relentless, which is great. Uh, but what has, uh, how has the pandemic affected you personally and how has it affected you professionally in terms of your work as well? Um, so with respect to our work, um, I think we got pretty lucky just with respect to where our company was when the pandemic hit. Uh, it, it presented challenges, uh, certainly, but I think um, it could have been a lot worse. So I feel kind of just lucky and, and, and humble about that. Uh, personally, I think that some of the things I benefited from when life changed, and um, I'm here in Halifax, and, and, and the, you know, our province has been pretty uh, blessed uh, relative to other provinces in Canada. Um, 
but but still we had several months where it was like you know now my office is my kitchen table and oh this is my wife's office as well so it certainly did uh you know introduce changes and i think uh some useful things for me was having just pre-existing habits that i could stick to um I had been going to the gym. I could no longer go to the gym, but I still had the habit of waking up at this time and exercising until I was able to keep that. And um, and the challenge for me was kind of um, being flexible. I think I'm a bit one one downside of my personality at least these days is that I can become a bit rigid. You know, I take the heuristic of good habits are you know equal production, and I just run with that. So that was that was where I had a bit of growing to do, and I think I, I did. I did uh, a good enough job to survive and, and, and uh, you know, get along with my wife um, by being flexible because, you know, it's just a different environment when you're working in your home with, uh, with your partner, as opposed to, you know, being in an office all day. Um, and then uh, I think uh, another thing that was helpful was, um, you know, again, I was, I was really blessed to, to like have my income not be affected by the pandemic. And so, uh, you know, uh, it's, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, just eking out every bit of gratitude you can at any point. And so there was a lot to be grateful for in my own personal situation because I was safe and healthy, had my, you know, income, my livelihood wasn't compromised. So um, just focusing on gratitude, uh, I think was also really beneficial uh, for me at least. Absolutely. I think uh, gratitude is uh, a good way of, of uh, having a mental health in place in these uh, difficult times because it's very easy to be overwhelmed with all the negativity and the crazy stuff going on in the world, which you know, there is a lot of those if you're looking for that, but also equally there are good things happening and they're you know, uh, having a state of health, having uh, you know, food on the table, having some of the basics being taken care of is also something to be grateful for. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's important. Now, another question, Chris, I have for you is in terms of uh, uh, this pandemic, what would I, I like to ask this question on to every of my guests and it's about trends, right? Uh, so, you know, a lot of things are, are bound to change and happen as a result of this pandemic for good or for worse over the next couple of years. Our behaviors will change. I mean, one of the most obvious ones is that the convenience economy where people are, you know, wanting things, everything done, delivered for their front door, that is definitely changing the way we shop, the way we do everything now. In your opinion, what do you think will change over the next couple of years as a result of this pandemic and how it's affected us? Um, well, one thing that's top of mind for us is, um, you know, the, de the further decentralization of healthcare. I think that, you know, uh, we've, we've kind of had a, you know, trial by fire, uh, especially in the U.S. The FDA has moved really quickly to um, license, you know, uh, to, to promote, uh, you know, uh, like reimbursement uh, for services that previously couldn't be. And, you know, those are, those are things that, you know, the naive observer would have, or the, the rational observer before COVID would have said, this will take decades to, to mm. happen. And that kind of happened overnight. So I think that certainly has changed the trajectory. It was already a trend, but it kind of was a step, you know, it was a linear trend moving slowly and it, that was, you know, COVID was a big old step function. And so I think that's gonna, that's gonna reverberate through decades. Um, that's on the positive side. Uh, on the negative side, I, uh, I, I kind of worry about our, uh, the, re the relationship between experts and um, I don't wanna say non-experts, but like in particular, the. Because you know the 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 importance of science 
this year has been elevated because you know um, you know a, a specific you know biological uh, pandemic has been you know a huge part of everyone's lives whereas um, you know there's nothing that reunites has united the human race like this for my lifetime um, and so you know uh, all of the um, the the polar the political polarization that existed has had a lot of gas poured on it and the in my in my opinion the relationship between uh, scientists and experts and kind of the, the population that you know um, is not engaged in those fields uh, I think that relationship is already pretty poor and I think it's gotten even worse um, and I so I, I and I kind of think there's there's blame to be had on both sides but I think that's that's my that's my downer that's my downer note so some good and some bad and that's I guess the case with most things yeah, yeah, I definitely uh, see what you, your point there. I think there's been that friction uh, between the skeptics. I think the skeptics have become even more skeptical uh, of the scientific community and the scientific community maybe uh, to some extent have this view of, uh, you know, uh, coming from a place of superiority in a way and be like, you know, what are you talking about? And I'm not trying to really, you know, uh, understand their concerns of people who are not experts by any means, but I suddenly think that will affect things moving forward. Yeah, there's, there's, I, do, I don't see a lot of ambition in the scientific community um, with respect to, uh, you know, communication and understanding with society at large. You know, pe people are interested in science communication but when they talk about that they're kind of talking about going to groups that are happy to hear from them and ready to believe what they have to say and just taking their message on a road show i don't think enough scientists uh, um myself included uh you know reckon with uh the 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 potential role that we could have in engaging with with, with the larger population. I don't have an easy answer for that. Again, I'm as guilty as anyone. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a particularly public scientist. So perhaps uh, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Perhaps it's uh, an exciting opportunity for some technology to come in to try and bridge that gap or a new business idea for someone out there. But uh, I definitely agree with you. There is a gap between uh, the science speak and the general public speak. And it's only been highlighted even more so this, uh, this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before I let you go here, Chris, any uh, takeaways, any sort of uh, insights or lessons or ideas you want to share with our listeners before I will let you go? Uh, I don't think I mentioned, you know, the, the role of mentors. I, 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 you know, it's it can't be said enough uh, at every stage, um, no matter how low or high you are on any career ladder. Uh, mentors are always, you know, they're always a secret weapon um, and that's where soft skills can play a role because you know you'll be more likely to attract good mentors and have good relationships with them if you if you have you know cultivated skills that uh, make you enjoyable to interface with so um, that's one thing I should have mentioned earlier as a takeaway um, yeah other than that like I said advice is hard to give and I've probably given too much of it on this podcast already uh, but I just want to say again I appreciate you having me on uh, I love what you're doing and uh, yeah very humble to be to be asked Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Chris. You shared so much insight and a lot of welcomed advice. <laughs> uh, so thanks for all of that. I'm sure we'll have you again in the future to talk more about uh, Axum and, uh, and your, your work there. But thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. I like that. Take care, David.